it's a privilege, as always, to uh, um, to be given the opportunity to uh, um, preach God's word. Um, let's pray before we start and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you um, that you speak to us um, through your word. You're our silent God. Um, you want us to know about you. Um, you want us to, to come to, to know you more. Um, I pray that you would um, help me um, to, to say things that are true. Um, and uh, I pray that you would help us all um, to have uh, listening hearts. Um, uh, and that your spirit would help us to, to understand it um, and to know more of you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, some of you might know um, that I do a bit of karate um, for the last few years. Um, Sam does it as well. Not not this Sam. Oh, this Sam. Oh, there he is. He's at the back. <laughs> I was looking for him. Um, so we, we go down to the Methodist Church in Aston um, on a Monday night and uh, and do karate and uh, and it's it's good fun most of the time. Mm-hmm. Sam's not so sure. Um, well, in martial arts, you probably know there's a system of uh, belts. So uh, you start off as a white belt, and you, like the aim is working your way up to the black belt. There's different colours in between. Different um, martial arts have different colours. Um, we have yellow, orange, green, blue, red, brown, and then black. Um, I'm a red belt at the minute, which means I'm nearly a brown. Hopefully, in the next few months, be a brown belt, which is just one step away from black. Um, sadly, that's five or six years um, training to go, f- go from brown to black, so it's not not really that close. Um, but but being a, a black belt is is a really cool thing, isn't it? That's quite like quite a kind of symbol. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's a symbol of how well you've mastered that art. Um, if you're a black belt, you've got all the skills to look after yourself. If you're ever in a situation where you're kind of physically um, threatened. Um, no one's going to want to mess with you if they know that you're a black belt. Um, and if, if they don't know and they do try and mess with you, then they're probably in for a bit of a shock. Um, because uh, a black belt is not, it's not something you learn overnight. It takes, it takes time and effort. Uh, it takes years of training and putting in the time and the, the energy to, uh, to practice over and over again. Um, so that it means you're ready for the fight. You're ready to defend yourself. And the other guy, in theory, doesn't have a chance in fact, I think I put a picture of a black belt who looks very scary, um, but not quite as scary as our uh, our centre, our teacher. Um, the Bible often paints a picture of the Christian life being something like a battle or a fight. Um, God calls us to be holy and to be righteous, to live in line with His commands. But um, but we have this enemy, um, the devil, who wants to see us fail, and um, who wants to put temptation in our path and so as we as we continue our series in Matthew's gospel uh, we see that Jesus faced that same enemy the devil um, and he gives us a master class he, he basically he teaches us how to be a black belt at fighting temptation and um, so Jesus has um, just had his credentials confirmed by the father if you're here last week um, Graham spoke to us about Jesus' baptism um, where Jesus received divine approval for his ministry that he was about to embark on. But before he actually goes out and starts preaching and teaching and, uh, and healing people, um, he has these 40 days of um, fasting in the desert, followed by temptation from the devil. Um, Jesus is, I guess he's, he's preparing himself for ministry. Um, fasting was a time when you would, um, 
yeah, spend time praying to God and meditating. And, and, and it was often in preparation for something. So Jesus was, was doing this to prepare for his ministry. Um, he was asking for, for God's help in that. Um, I think the, the number 40 is interesting here, just a little aside. Um, Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And if you remember, Israel was 40 years in the desert um, wandering um, after they came out of Egypt, um, which Graham touched on last week and we'll, we'll come back to um, briefly later on. So let's, um, let's dig into the passage. There are three temptations. Um, each of them is three verses long and each has the same structure. So there's a bit of narrative that sets the scene. Uh, then the devil speaks and then Jesus responds. And then we've got a verse on either side, which I guess is a little, a little prologue and an epilogue. Um, instead of working through the passage linearly, I want to take three different ideas that I think are there in all of the three temptations and, and work through them. So thinking about this idea of being a black belt, I think there are three ideas here. Um, three things that the best fighters, the black belts, do to ready themselves for a fight. So first of all, know your enemy. Second, uh, prepare your mind. And third, learn from the master. So that's where we're going. So one of the most... Um, most important rules of any kind of combat is know your enemy. Um, so when, when we're at karate, um, most of the time we're kind of practicing uh, different techniques, you know, different kicks and blocks and punches and that sort of thing. Uh, but often at the end of the session, we'll have 10 or 15 minutes of what we call sparring. Um, so we're, we're kind of fighting each other um, without, without contact, really. Well, that's, that's the theory. Um, so some, sometimes, sometimes you know, there is a bit of contact. Um, I've been popped in the nose a few times. Um, but you, you tend to spar the same people. You spar people who are sort of your belt, roughly, and kind of ability level. Um, he, he does usually say, um, pick someone your own size, um, but I find that a struggle. Um, so I tend to be uh, <laughs> beating up the little kids, but, you know, it's, it's all fun. <laughs> it's all good fun. Um, but I, I see, but you tend to you, you tend to get to know um, the people that you're sparring. Um, you get to know their strengths and their weaknesses. You get to know when they're likely to sort of leave a little gap that you can exploit to put a punch in there. Obviously not on them. Um, hopefully, um, obviously it works. It works both ways. Um, your opponents can have knowledge of you too in that situation. Uh, but generally, knowing your enemy is is a good thing to do before you going to battle you don't want to be going in blind um, and that that is true of the spiritual battle that we that uh, we have um, when we face temptation so it's great that the bible gives us uh, intelligence on our enemy and um, on, on the devil and there is plenty that we can learn in this passage about the devil the first and the most obvious thing to say about the devil is that he exists he's not like um he's not a concept um, he's not an idea, um, but he is, he is real. He's a real and present danger um, to, to us that we've got to be on our guard against. Um, in the passage, he, he speaks to Jesus. He, he takes Jesus' places. He tempts him. Um, he, he is real. He's a, not a figment of Jesus' imagination. Um, what else can we say about the devil from this passage? Um, well, let's, uh, let's have a look at what he's... Uh, uh, let's have a look at what he's called. Uh, his names, he's given three different names. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, 
three, three different names in these 11 verses. Uh, the first one is the devil, um, as we've been calling him so far. So look down at the passage with me, um, Matthew chapter 4, um, page 967. It's really helpful if you have your Bible open, because um, it means you can check that what I'm saying is in there, and I'm not just uh, making it up. Um, so Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 1, um, Jesus says, uh, tempted by the devil, it says. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city. Verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Uh, and verse 11, then the devil left him. So the devil is used um, quite a few times there. Um, this is the Greek word uh, diabolos, which means accuser or slanderer. Um, the sense is of someone who uses words to destroy a person. The devil's main weapon is words, which we see pretty clearly here. He tries to manipulate Jesus into um, into breaking God's commands, um, into ruining his relationship with the Father. He kind of he, he whispers in our ear, tells us half truths and downright lies. He twists God's uh, promises. Remember in the Garden of Eden, where the devil tempts Eve um, to eat the fruit. Um, and he does it by basically making God out to be a liar. And not only does the devil cause us to sin, um, but he's the first one on the scene uh, when we have sinned, telling us that you know, God is not going to love us anymore because of our sin. He is uh, the, the accuser, I guess. Uh, he's also called uh, the tempter. In verse 3. This is kind of obvious, really. Um, in a passage about temptation, the devil is the one doing the tempting. Um, but let's just uh, define temptation so that we're, we're on the same page. Um, often we we can use temptation in a different way to how the Bible used it. Um, we might think of temptation as being uh, a desire to do something bad. Um, so, you know, there might be a box of chocolates in front of you and you are tempted to scoff the whole lot. Um, but, you know, you don't do it because it's, it's bad for your teeth, it'll spoil your teeth, or whatever else your mum might tell you. Um, or, or, then again, you might just decide you're going you're gonna to eat them all and give in to temptation. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here, um, because Jesus was uh, perfect, he was sinless, and he didn't have the desire to sin. Um, so it's, it seems like the word is more um, a bit more like test, um, so the devil is testing Jesus and, and he tests us. When he tempts us, he is testing us. And he, he wants to see if our faith stands up. Um, well, in, in fact, what he really wants to see is us fall flat. Um, and, and that leads into the final name that he's called in this passage, uh, which is Satan. In verse 10, uh, Jesus calls the devil Satan. Uh, uh, which is a word that means adversary or opponent. The devil's goal, his whole reason for being, I guess, is to bring us down. He claims to have our best interests at heart, but but really all he wants to do is to see us fail. Sometimes in, in popular culture there can be a bit of a romanticised version of the devil where, you know, he's like the cool guy um, who like organises all the all the great parties that you want to go to. But make no mistake, the devil's aim is your downfall. So that's, that's some of his names that he used. Um, what are his tactics then? Uh, we're going to look through each of the temptations in turn and see what we can learn about the devil's tactics. 
Um, first of all, uh, verses 2 and 3. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, it's kind of obvious Jesus is hungry. Um, he is a human being. He's been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, hungry is probably a, a bit of an understatement. Um, and of course, he has the power to turn the stones into bread. We know that. We know that he is God's son. He was affirmed as that um, during his baptism. But using his power in that way would show a lack of trust in God to provide for his needs. Now, when the, when the devil says, if you are the son of God, I don't think he's casting doubt on Jesus' divinity. The devil knows exactly who Jesus is. Um, but some, sometimes, uh, some translations will use the word since instead of if, um, which seems, seems more appropriate. What, what the devil is saying is, you've got power over nature, Jesus. There's no need to be hungry. Stop trusting the Father to care for your needs and you know, do the thing that you can do. Use your power um, to give you what you want right now. Of course, the, the devil leaves a lot of that out of what he actually says. Um, he's always going to put a positive spin on sin. So our first tactic, the devil puts a positive spin on sin. He's not, he's not going to give us both sides of the argument. He's going to leave stuff out. So the second temptation, um, let's have a look at verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Pretty sneaky. The devil is using, it's almost using Jesus' tactic against him. He's, he's using God's word. Um, but he is, he is twisting its meaning. Um, he, he quotes a couple of verses from Psalm 91. But if you have a look at that uh, passage, you have to turn there now. Um, but the point is, that in that, in that psalm, that God is our refuge. And we can go to him in times of trouble. And he will protect us. Um, we're, we're told that this is true. It is God's word. Um, and for us to test if that is true by like running headlong into danger um, is, is just stupid, really. It shows that it, it doesn't... Um, well, it would show that Jesus, if Jesus gave into this temptation, it would show that he didn't really trust God to keep his promises. And the final temptation comes in verses 8 to 9. Um, again the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour all this I will give you he said if you will bow down and worship me so the devil is offering Jesus power and dominion over the whole world this is something that Jesus has already been promised by God um, but to get there he's got to go through the intense uh, pain and suffering and anguish of the cross. The devil is offering it him via a much, much easier route. All he has to do is bow down and worship the devil, and he will have that thing that God has already promised him. But what, what the devil is doing, 
well, let's, let's put that on the screen. He's, he's promising uh, good things via, via an easy route. But, again, he's, he's missing things out here, really. Um, he's trying to fool Jesus. For a start, the end result is not going to be the same as what God has promised. Jesus was actually given dominion over the earth and the heavens, which he confirms in, in at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28. And secondly, whatever the devil promises, it is never going to be worth uh, sacrificing his holiness for. Jesus' response isn't, you have no right to promise that, or God has promised something better, although those things are perfectly valid. His response is that he doesn't want to bow down to sin. He doesn't want to uh, give in to temptation. So that's some of the devil's names and some of his tactics. Um, And it's really important that we know um, how he works so that we can be on guard against him um, as 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us but there is something else really important that we learn about the devil in these verses he's not God's rival he's not all powerful he is under God's command and control have a look down with me at verse 1 uh, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Uh, and verse 11, uh, sorry, verse, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. So in verse 1 we see the devil doesn't just pop out of nowhere as Jesus is in the desert. He's, he's, Jesus is not surprised to see him because it's part of God's plan that he's tested in this way. It is the spirit that leads him. And then at the end, when Jesus tells Satan to go away, he does. This is really important. The devil, the devil is formidable, he's deceitful, and he's cunning and sly, and he will try to cause you to sin, and we should be on our guard against him, but he shouldn't keep us awake at night. He is not God. He cannot take away your salvation. He cannot do anything that is outside of God's sovereign control. He is uh, a dog on a leash, really. He can only go as far as God will let him. He cannot thwart God's plans. In fact, all that he can do is help to bring them to pass. Uh, think of Job um, earlier on uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. The devil had to get permission from God to take away his health and his family and his friends, um, his, you know, his health, all that sort of thing. And it was ultimately for God's glory that that happened. And think of the cross later on. Just when the devil thought he'd won his greatest victory, he was actually suffering his greatest defeat. It was God's plan all along. And he was actually just playing right into God's hands. So there isn't a battle for supremacy in heaven. Jesus is king. But it's still good to know our enemy and to be on guard against his schemes. One final thing to say briefly about the devil is that we can't blame him when we fall into sin. Jesus was tempted by the devil and didn't sin. Um, so we, we are responsible for our own sin. We're not saved from God's wrath by uh, pointing the finger of blame at the devil and going, it was him, it was him, it was his fault. We are saved from God's wrath uh, by Jesus taking the blame on himself on the cross. So, we know our enemy now. 
we know a lot about the devil, we know who he is, we know what his tactics are, uh, but how, how do we defend against him? Jesus shows us that the answer is by using the best weapon at our disposal, the word of God, the Bible. In Ephesians, uh, Paul calls it um, the sword of the spirit. Obviously, it's not a physical weapon. I'm not talking about picking your Bible up and, you know, hitting the devil with it when he comes calling. Um, I mean, I I don't know if you've seen in the office upstairs, there are some massive Bibles you could cause some really, like, serious damage with. But um, if if you can pick them up. But I'm not talking about that. Um, This is a battle that is waged in the mind. So the weapon is something that we wield with our minds too. Uh, Preparing your mind is, is a really important concept in karate. Um, our teacher, uh, we, we call him sensei because that's just Japanese for teacher um, our sensei will uh, talk to us about focus and sometimes he'll ask us to do things full focus that uh, means the technique um, we, we've got to do, we've got to give it our all and we've got to have our minds 100% on it and we also need to prepare our minds in another sense, we need to actually learn those techniques learn how to do them and um, and learn how to use them in, in different situations. We never use any weapons in karate um, because our weapon is, is our mind, really, knowing uh, when the right time is to use uh, different techniques and to kind of take down people that might be bigger than us or whatever. Well, Jesus' mind here is totally prepared for the battle. He's in full focus mode. He uses his mind... Uh, to wield the weapon of scripture to great effect. So how, how does he actually use it? It sounds great, but what does it mean uh, to effectively use God's word as a weapon? Well, Jesus does it by pulling out three quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Um, so let, let's just get our bearings. If you're not familiar um, with the, the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament is the first sort of two-thirds of the Bible. Um, it's, it's the bit from creation up until about 400 years before Jesus was born. Um, and Deuteronomy is part of the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. We sometimes call them the uh, Pentateuch uh, because there are five. Um, so we've got Genesis, which is about like creation and the flood and the call of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Um, we've got Exodus, uh, where God's people, Israel, um, are led out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. We've got Leviticus, which is about how God would make his people holy through sacrifices. We've got Numbers, what happened while Israel was wandering the desert for those 40 years. And finally, we've got Deuteronomy, um, where Israel is about to enter the land that God has promised them. Um, And Moses speaks uh, God's word to them. He has a series of uh, speeches um, where he reminds them of what God has done in the past, of his covenant with them. And, uh, and of his commands of how they can be a, um, a holy nation um, in the future. Gives them commands to live by. And it, it's to this part of the Bible that Jesus goes to defend himself against the devil. So, uh, for the next little bit, we're going to be flicking backwards and forwards between Matthew and Deuteronomy. Um, so if you've got your Bibles open, keep a finger in Matthew um, and flick back to Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, chapter 8. Sorry. Um, which is on page 187 in your Bibles. Um, 
And then once you're there, put your finger in it and flick back to Matthew. Because we're going to read a bit of Matthew first. Just testing your skills. So, uh, let's read the first temptation. Which is verses 2 to 4 of Matthew chapter 4. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written... Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this quote here is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Um, We're going to read the first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So back back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, page 187, says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on earth to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the background to this is that when Israel was wandering the desert, they complained that they were hungry. Um, There's there's not much food in the desert, so that's kind of understandable. Um, But they didn't just complain; they were like they were really complaining. They were like, "We would rather be back in Egypt where we were in slavery because they they thought they were going to die." Basically, they didn't trust that God, who had brought them out of slavery, would provide for them. But God did provide. He provided um, miraculous manna from heaven that they would collect um, in a morning, like little bits of bread that they could feed their family with. Um, And he showed them that more important than food is trusting in God uh, to provide at the right time. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Matthew. He's basically facing that same temptation um, as Israel way back when. And the temptation to not trust that God would provide at the right time. Okay, so the second temptation. Um, back in Matthew, chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Um, so if you flick back there, it's on page 187. Um, hopefully you didn't take your finger out of Deuteronomy. Keep them in Deuteronomy and Matthew. Um, So chapter 6 verse 16 says, Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Uh, So what what is this Massa place? What happened there? Well this time the Israelites were not hungry. They were really thirsty. And they went to Moses and they said, Is God really with us? Prove it. Give us some water. So they basically issued God with an ultimatum. Um, God, God did give them something to drink. 
he miraculously provided water um, water for, for them from a rock um, but he was he was really angry that um, they hadn't trusted him um, and Jesus is not going to make that same mistake he knows that that angers God and he's not going to do the same thing he knows his scripture he's going to trust his father implicitly Okay, so back to Matthew, final temptation. Verses 8 to 10. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy. One more. One more quote to go. Um, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So, back to Deuteronomy, chapter 6, um, a little bit earlier on, we're going to read from verse 10. Jesus is quoting from verse 13. So we'll read, read from verse 10 to get some context. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, uh, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and do not take your oaths in his name. This time, God is not reminding Israel of the past, but he's, um, he's telling them to live as his people in the future. God is providing them with this really rich land. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the land flown with milk and honey. Um, it's a rich land of their own. And he commands them to remember who he is and, um, and that he'd given them great blessings so that they wouldn't be tempted to worship the false gods. If you were here for our series in Judges, you know that didn't turn out so well. They did worship those false gods. They didn't heed this command. They started worshipping false gods like almost immediately when they got into the promised land uh, and things started to go really wrong. But Jesus knows the command. He knows what happened when Israel didn't follow it. Um, so he speaks it to the devil and he follows it himself. Okay, so we're finished in Deuteronomy. So you can take your finger out there and go back to Matthew. So that, that, is, that is how Jesus fought the devil. But why? Is it an effective strategy? Let me give you two reasons. Firstly, it's effective because it is truth against lies. When we use God's word against the devils, we are pissing truth against lies. And people only really believe lies when they don't know the truth. Um, I, I've got two sisters, and I've always been the one who kind of like knows stuff, like knows how things work, and... Uh, and that, that sort of thing. So they would often ask me questions like, Jai, why does this work like that? Why, you know? Um, and and of, often I would know the answer and I'd be able to answer them properly. Sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but I really hate saying, I don't know. So what I would usually do was make something up which sounded like it was probably about right and just tell them tell them that was the truth. Um, yeah. Um, but, but I realised later on when I went to uni that I couldn't do that anymore. Like, people would call me out on it pretty quickly. If I, if I told someone something that wasn't true, 
very quickly they would find out <laughs> that it wasn't true and they would come back to me and that would be pretty embarrassing. So I kind of stopped doing that. Um, but we, when, when we're tempted to believe the devil's lies, um, it's because we've not got the truth of God in, in our hearts. When, when we put God's truth against the devil's lies, there is no, there's no match really. Second of all, the Bible is effective because it has power. It is the very word of God, the word that brought into existence all of creation and that has called us um, to believe in the gospel, has renewed our hearts. It has power uh, to stop the devil in his tracks, just as Jesus demonstrates for us here. So how, how do we prepare our minds it's pretty simple, really. We need to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. We need to swat up on the Bible. We need to read it daily. We need to meditate on it and study it and hear it taught in church and uh, on a Sunday and in Gurkhas. And we need to memorise it. We need to um, speak it into our own hearts and into the lives um, of others as well. Sometimes we can uh, see the Bible as... I don't know, something that we have to tick off our to-do list every day. Um, something that makes us feel guilty when we miss a day. Um, but we need to treasure it and we need to see it um, as, as our most powerful defence against the devil. Um, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here really, by the way, because often I have the, the wrong attitude. But, so, uh, so let yourself be saturated with God's word. That is the way to prepare your mind for the battle. Okay, so the third and final thing that we need to do to be a black belt is learn from the master. No one ever got to be a black belt in karate by just making things up as they went along. Not listening to the teacher, just like stood in the corner, you know, doing their own little dance or whatever. That's not going to get you a black belt. Techniques have to be done properly and precisely Apparently, when you have a black belt grading, you cannot make a single mistake. If you make one mistake, that's it. You don't get your black belt, and you have to try again um, later on. Um, and, and apparently, as well, you don't get told that until the very end of your three-hour grading. Um, so you could have made a mistake really early on in like a really easy thing and not know until the end, which would be awful. Um, but yeah, so you're not going to be able to achieve the highest grade um, unless you watch and learn how it's done. Jesus is our teacher. He's the master of beating temptation. We need to watch him and do what he does, um, which is basically doing the things that we've just looked at. But Jesus goes, so Jesus, Jesus is our example, but, it, but Jesus goes much further than that. He's not just an example for us to follow. He is so much more than an example. He didn't just he didn't just come to show us um, how to battle temptation. He came to battle temptation for us. What do I mean by that? Well, by resisting the devil, he did what we cannot do. He fulfills the requirements of the law. He succeeds where we fail. Uh, he succeeds where Adam failed. He reverses the effects of the fall. 
Adam brought death into the world through his disobedience, but Jesus brings life into the world through his obedience. He succeeds where Israel failed. Matthew really wants to drive this point home to us in these few chapters. He keeps making parallels between Jesus and Israel. Uh, Coming out of Egypt, going through the Jordan River, um, wandering around in the desert for 40 periods of time, 40 days, 40 years. God's chosen people were supposed to be holy and set apart. They were supposed to be a blessing um, to the nations around them. But they did a really, really terrible job at that. Jesus does it perfectly. So he succeeds where Adam failed, he succeeds where Israel failed, and he succeeds where we fail. Later on in the Bible, uh, there's a letter to um, the Hebrews. Uh, I'm just going to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus became like us. He faced the temptations that we face. He was made like us so that he could uh, so they could sympathise with us, so they could help us in our weakness, but also so that he could encounter those things and overcome them. When Jesus died on the cross, a great swap took place. Jesus took on our sin, our our failure to resist temptation, our distrust uh, of God, of God's care for us, and He clothed us with His righteousness, His perfect obedience. This is fantastic news because however hard we try, we are never going to be black belts. We're never going to be black belts. We barely deserve to be white belts. But you can't be lower than a white belt, so... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really work. But, but yeah, what, what an awesome and beautiful King and Saviour Jesus is. I hope that if, you, if you're a Christian, this picture of Jesus really uh, lifts your heart and brings you joy today and a a renewed sense of hope in the battle that you have in Jesus both the the resource to be able to fight and win the battle and grace and forgiveness for the times when you fail if you're not a Christian I hope that you can see how uh, Christianity differs from um, other philosophies which will often say you've, you've got to become a black belt in X or Y or Z um, in order to attain paradise or inner peace or whatever the Christian gospel says that you cannot do that yourself so God came down to earth as a human and did it for you if you are trusting him so in the gospel we have the tools that we need to fight the battle and we also have the assurance that Jesus has won the ultimate victory for us